0: The most important thing I would mention aside from the defensive profile of trend following is just the universe. Um, That's one thing I think people should really focus on, making sure when they're investing in trend following that they're, they're getting material exposure to a very broad universe. Because as I mentioned, trends being relatively rare, your best chance of success is having exposure to these strange corners of the market. And I don't mean just having them in the portfolio in some token amount, but having material exposure to things like European power or or Hungarian interest rates when trends pop up there. So I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager, due diligence, or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged. Where today, Alan Dunn and I are joined by Matt Dawson, Portfolio Manager within Quantitative Strategies at Pimco, as part of our mini series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. So, first off, Matt, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you're doing well on the West Coast.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, we're certainly doing very well on the
2: West Coast. We've had a lot of unusual snow, but other than that, it's uh, smooth sailing. Yeah, that's what I was watching on the television. I'm thinking, well, you complain often about the uh, not having enough moisture in your <laughs> weather, and I'm thinking this year you may not complain about that. Now we've got it. Yeah, we've got a good snowpack. Yeah. Exactly. Now, before we dive into all the to- uh, different topics we're going to talk about uh, with you, um, I would like just to set the stage a little bit for our com- conversation. Um, and also so that the audience um, can know a little bit about uh, PIMCO um, and especially maybe PIMCO's uh, involvement in the trend-following space. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of a few highlights, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the strategies you run within your, your quantitative group um, and uh, and kind of where the business stands as we've entered into
0: 2023. Yeah, so PIMCO, obviously not something that most people think about when they think about quantum investing, but... You know, we like to think that we've been a fairly systematic investor for decades. Actually, uh, there are papers that Bill Gross wrote two decades ago talking about harvesting structural risk premia and you know the uh, the difference between Treasury bond futures and the actual cash bonds, or harvesting um, option premia by selling interest rate options, stuff like that. So we've we've take a very systematic approach to bond investing. Our first foray into your know, direct. Systematic investing actually came about 15 years ago uh, with the advent of tail risk hedging, and then uh, you know shortly after that we we got into trend following, and we've been focused on that you know ever since. And we've broadened out our offerings to kind of more absolute return mandates, focused on a wide set of systematic strategies. So we run about 60 billion dollars in assets right now, in and what we would call quant investing, um, large chunk of that is tail risk hedging, but uh, the second biggest thing is trend following, and that's what I focus
2: my time on. And and if, un- unless it's confidential, of course, w- what, what does that leave in trend in terms of uh, uh, AUM that you run in these strategies, you would say, roughly? It's on the order of $5 billion. Okay. Very good. Excellent. And uh, so it sounds like you joined the firm more or less at the time when all this systematic uh, expansion was taking place. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that's about right. Not, when to I joined d- the- not to date you, Matt. Not to date you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I joined the
0: quant Desk, as we call it, that was really just starting. You know, we had tail risk hedging, but we were just starting
2: in trend following. Fantastic, good stuff. Now, as you may know from uh, listening to other episodes, uh, Alan and I have kind of a a, a long list of different topics. Uh, we don't always get to talk about all of them, but uh, we do bring them up uh, and kick them off kind of uh, one by one. So I will, as uh, as the audience now will be completely familiar with, I will kick it over to Alan to uh, to start off uh, our conversation on these topics today. So over to you,
3: Alan. Thanks, Niels uh, Mas, uh, good to speak to you. Um, I mean, it's interesting uh, to hear about that kind of history of, uh, as you say, the the evolution of quant trading in in PIMCO uh, from kind of systematic trading in bonds to tail risk to trend. How would you say, I mean, the the fact that you approached trend from starting from tail risk, does that say something about how you view trend following and and does that say something about the the overall philosophy that you bring to, to trend following?
0: Yeah, that's very intentional, actually. So we started with tail risk hedging, as I said, you know, with a strong focus on providing clients with defensive protection. And kind of in the process of that, you know, that evolution, we realized, well, hey, there's this other strategy out here, which certainly doesn't provide guaranteed protection in tail events like tail risk hedging does. But it seems to have a very consistent defensive profile across time and many different crises. You know, it's not guaranteed, doesn't happen every time, but that seems to be pretty consistent. Um, and in contrast to risk hedging, it doesn't cost money. In fact, it pays you money to be in it. So we viewed that as a very valuable thing, a very unique strategy for investors. Um, and there are very few other things like that out there. So, yeah, that's always informed our view. And we've tried to enhance that where we can in our approach to trend following to really bring out that characteristic because we view that as the most important thing for end investors.
3: And I mean, in constructing the portfolio, is that very much at the forefront of your minds in terms of building a, you know, a trend portfolio that is very heavy on that characteristic? Or are you still very much? first and foremost thinking about absolute returns with the additional benefit of of that kind of defensive uh, property.
0: Yeah, I would say first and foremost is the defensive property and then absolute returns come after that. So, one thing that we're very careful to do is, you know, when we're investigating new strategies, um we may have an idea for a strategy that makes money and looks very good, but the first thing that we look at before adding it to the portfolio is What does it do to the defensive characteristics? And if it's not defensive, if it's reducing that behavior, we have a very high bar to adding things. So there are many things that we think are trend following in nature, thought had a lot of promise, and we've not added them to the portfolio because they made the defensive characteristics worse.
3: Okay. That's very interesting. I mean, most of, if not all of the managers we've spoken to would kind of start off with the premise of... You know philosophically believe that markets trend and you want trend following makes sense from that perspective and over time have figured out that it has this defensive characteristic but you very much started off trying to build a portfolio that would give a defensive property and it just so happens that that a trend following approach uh, lends itself very well to that
0: well i mean like i said that that characteristic something that doesn't cost money or pays you money in fact uh and then is also negatively correlated with equities or defensive in nature uh that's extremely rare in the asset allocation context. It's extremely valuable if you think it's going to continue. Uh, there are plenty of other strategies out there that add returns uh, and clients do that separately. But the thing that's really unique and valuable to them is this defensive behavior.
3: And from your perspective, what, why do you think that persists over time? Or you, you mentioned ahead has that, uh, that defensive property. You know, it's not guaranteed, but it has been fairly uh, consistent through multiple types of uh, crises. What do you think it has that um, consistency?
0: Well, I think, you know, there are kind of two ways of looking at it, one more of a quantitative way and one more like a qualitative way. In the qualitative sense, trend following is one of the few strategies that can really get short assets when that's the trend. You know, many people can get neutral, but they're, they're not going short a lot of assets. And they're certainly very reluctant to do so, even if they can. Um, so when a crisis event is happening and you've got a prolonged downturn in assets, the trend follower will jump on that, whereas other people at most will probably be flat. On kind of the more mechanical, quantitative side, trend following, I think, no matter how you construct the portfolio, is kind of like replicating a portfolio of long options in different assets. You know, typically, as, as the trend goes in your favor, you're adding to the position, um, which, you know, if you're replicating an option... A long option position, you know, the delta increases. You need to buy more, so it's kind of mechanically like a long option position. So I think it's very logical that you would expect this kind of convexity type behavior um, in crisis events. What the the thing that is surprising is that it doesn't cost you money to do so. In fact, it pays you money to do so. So that's that's the surprising thing that comes back to behavioral anomalies that many investors suffer from.
2: Yeah, I want to say a little bit with this, it's very, very interesting. And as Alan pointed out, um, it's a little bit different approach to what we've heard from uh, other managers. So my first question would be actually, when you look at at your peer group, do you notice that uh, that your strategy is behaving differently um, now that you're coming at it from a slightly different angle, maybe even though it's trend following and we're all trend followers, but, but just from a structural point of view, do you, do you notice a difference or does it actually in the end, even though the models might be designed with a slightly different objective, um, it actually looks very similar to what other uh, trend followers are doing?
0: Well, I think the broad performance behavior is similar. But one thing that we do notice is very quantifiable is the correlation with equities we've realized over the lifetime of our fund, the most negative correlation with equities of, uh, I think, all or most of our competitors. So that, that shows up very clearly as confirmation that our approach is, is
2: working or at least doing that what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, that's quite interesting. Now, so, you know, one of the topics that uh, that I like to ask uh, about is this, uh, you know, um, kind of philosophical um, thinking about, you know, do you do pure trend or do you sort of diversify uh, your um, trend following? You've clearly come out and say, well, actually, we're, we're kind of pre- pure camp, and and that's great to hear because there aren't that many of us left uh, in the pure camp. Um, but it, it brings up this paper that Cliff Asness. Um, and Yao from um, AQR wrote last year that we always like to just hear people's thoughts about. And one of the things that, uh, that they mentioned was, uh, was this, um, you know, are, are we becoming too concerned about the sharp? So even as a pure trend follower, even as someone who takes the uh, stance from, yeah, we definitely need to have some um, uh, more intention behind providing uh, returns during a quote-unquote crisis... Um, how, how do you look at how do you look at these risk adjusted metrics um what how how much weight do you put in them when you when you design your overall strategy are they important to you or, or how do you how do you look at that I mean performance is important we we definitely uh, want to be able to
0: produce something that's defensive as well as high returning um, but like I said, the the
2: primary driver is is defensiveness. But I'm specifically sorry to interrupt you, uh, Matt. No, I'm I'm thinking here about you know the risk adjusted performance, so to speak. To to you know to use a, a really bad uh, example, it's the sharp, right? So are you even concerned about the sharp, so to speak? Uh, like we've I guess we've seen many of our peers uh, have become somewhat, and and many of them actually to maybe to my price a little bit, have been very open about it in our conversations, where it is kind of a business decision um, that they want to put something in that makes it easier to hold and so on and so forth. And we translate that in a simple way, just saying, yeah, okay, we focus, we do have a, we do pay attention to the shop. So my question to you is, is that something that even plays a role from from your perspective? Well, for sure it does.
0: So we definitely want to have a reasonable sharp. You know, we don't want to produce something that's extremely defensive with a negative sharp sharp. That's not going to be attractive to anyone. Or even uh, you know, close to zero sharp. Theoretically, that would still be a benefit to many people's portfolio, but you know, most people are not going to go for that. So we we do want to produce a reasonable sharp. I mean, part of the way that we do that is by having a very broad universe. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to sacrifice the defensiveness in order to maximize the sharp. So and like I said earlier, you know, there's a strong temptation to add strategies to the mix that are you know, kind of value oriented, something, you know, things that are kind of almost mechanically uh, negatively correlated with trend following. And that's going to bring up your sharp ratio, um, but at the expense of the defensiveness. And that's something that we don't do. Um, we have the luxury, I guess, of, of being a relatively small part of a broader firm that doesn't, you know, most of it is not quant investing so we can kind of wait through periods, fallow periods in the trend following space when it's not really doing that much and kind of still offer that to clients and try to help them understand that this is a long-term allocation and you know other parts of your portfolio should be focused on absolute return but this part of the portfolio the real valuable part is the defensiveness and the diversification
2: yeah, I think that's a really good point. Actually, that the fact that your shop also is very different compared to the uh, the other managers that we tend to come across. Now, one of the things that I'm hoping you can help me out with here, Matt, is that when I do my travels and especially at the moment where people are at- actually interested in talking to trend followers, which is nice. One of the things I I, I really see a lot of people um, do when 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 we have these conversations is they they very much look at. T- Trend following as a as a trade, right? And they even go as far as thinking that, well, if it did well in twenty twenty two, it's not going to do well in twenty twenty three, and so on and so forth. Can you help uh, um, us with some of your thoughts and, and narratives around how can we get investors not to look at trend like that? Um, in a sense, and and that that's kind of how I tend to go. Is that? You know this part of their portfolio, they really need to look at in a different light. But I don't want to give my narrative. I'd much rather hear your narrative in terms of how do we help people overcome that natural bias towards uh, how they look at trend following.
0: I mean, I think the answer is that there's there's no real good solution to that. I mean, part of the reason that the returns are persistently so high and something that's so valuable in your portfolio is exactly the reason you're stating. Like people just cannot stomach it, right? It's doing something generally very different from how most people think about investing. Uh, Most people just will not be able to hold it long-term no matter how much kind of education they get. Uh, But I I think you have to try and you have to explain that. And it's, it's very hard to time trend following. You need to think about it as this kind of unusual thing that you're allocating to that over time will produce returns and be diversifying but just simply i don't think everyone's going to get that yeah no no if I, if i could jump in on that Alan,
3: yeah i yeah, mean yeah, what, yeah, sure. what exactly i mean i think you're right and we all sense that uh, in our interactions with with investors which bit of it do you think is it that's hard to stomach is it just prolonged drawdowns or kind of uh, a seemingly kind of random return profile or the fact that you can have a drawdown that when equities are doing well and there's a perceived opportunity cost of holding it, or what do you think, which aspect of the return um, profile do you think is difficult to endure? I think it's all of those. I think the basic premise of trend following is kind
0: of the opposite of what most people think about for investing, right? I mean, buy high, sell low type of thing. I mean, most people think it makes no sense. Um, And then just, by definition, something that's kind of an unusual diversifying strategy with low correlations with almost any other strategy out there. By definition, that means it's going to have drawdowns at weird times and people are going to be like, you know, what the heck is going on with this strategy? It makes no sense. But they don't really think that like if they're expecting something that's a diversifying unusual strategy, it's naturally going to have some drawdowns. And those drawdowns are probably going to be at weird times. You should embrace that. But it's just very hard to do. People are more comfortable with things that have drawdowns at the same time as the other stuff in their portfolio because it kind of makes sense, even though logically speaking, that's not what you should want.
3: Yeah, I no, mean, makes sense, but uh, doesn't solve the the, the, the behavioral challenge. Um, just going 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 back to kind of uh, portfolio construction and and how you've built the program. You know, I guess if you want to build a trend program that has that stronger defensive characteristic. There are certain things you can do. Um, at least when we've spoken to other managers, so one might be trading speed. Maybe it won't want to be a bit faster, particularly in equities at turning points, or else possibly some managers might say don't trade equities at all. But if it's going to be used uh, uh, alongside equities, or else capping the equity beta. But just curious, what, what what are the kind of levers that you've pulled in terms of developing the program to give it a bit more? defensive-like uh, characteristic uh, relative to, to other managers, would you say?
0: Well, the first one I've already mentioned, you know, at length almost, is that, you know, you don't want to reduce that by adding diversifying strategies to portfolio. Then there are a couple of things that we do to actually enhance that behavior. The first, which you mentioned, is, you know, we're relatively fast. Um, you know, not the fastest out there, but relatively fast. And one thing that we've convinced ourselves of, you know, looking back over decades of of backtest data is that that doesn't really change your absolute expected return. I think, you know, some years are good for slow trend followers, particularly last year. Some years are good for fast trend followers. But on average, I don't think you should expect a real return difference. But what we do see very consistently is that if you're a fast trend follower, you're more defensive. So the returns conditional on being in some sort of market drawdown tend to be consistently higher, which I think is, is uh, logical to expect. If you go back to the option analogy, um, if you're a fast trend follower, you're replicating kind of shorter maturity options, you know, which by definition have higher convexity, higher gamma, higher payoffs in in tail scenarios. So that's something you should expect. You know, the the tradeoff is that you have higher turnover, more false starts, and you need to be very careful about execution costs there. But if you're able to do that, I think that consistently makes it more defensive. And then the other thing that we do is that we have kind of an asymmetric approach to the equity risk in our portfolio. And by equity risk, I don't mean just outright equities, but anything that we view as correlated with equities. So, you know, long oil, long base metals often looks like equity risk, long emerging market currencies, Uh, all of that stuff, we limit our potential exposure to these risk on assets, um, which is naturally makes you more defensive. Um, and then also mitigates the potential problem you have, like the February 2018 example that I always like to talk about where sentiment reverses overnight. That was you know, when we had those VIX ETN blowups and, and we went into a bear market very quickly. In that sort of situation, coming off of a, a risk on rally, trend followers can be very much on the wrong side of that and, and can be very embarrassing when that reverses. So limiting your equity beta, you know, positive equity beta exposure can mitigate that to some extent.
3: And you said, you know, you're relatively fast, not very fast. Can you give you, give us a sense of, like, in terms of average hold period, um, how fast, or how would you describe how fast you are?
0: Yeah, our average holding period is, say, one to two months. So it's, um, I think, considerably faster than the average, which is maybe closer to six months. But we're not talking about intraday trend following for the most part.
3: Sure. Um, I mean, I can understand how being faster will get you... Um, Short in, in, uh, when equities turn down, is there a risk when you're being that being faster in the midst of an you know a prolonged equity bear market that you might get shaken out of that uh, trend? um You know we've had a couple of bear market rallies in equity, either counter trend moves. How do you how do you protect against that? Given that you want to maintain that overall defensive characteristic.
0: Well, I, I think that just comes with the territory. I don't think there's any easy way to solve that. And indeed, we did see that a couple of times last year, particularly in the summer when we had that bear market rally that quickly reversed. So, you know, we got, you know, out of our short position there, which was a bad thing to do, but uh, there's no way to really see that in advance.
3: Okay. Um, Neil, anything on this? I, I have a follow-up question, but it's more on multi asset.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I I, I thought it was a fascinating, uh, you know, this thing about limiting the the uh, the risk on side of things because from my experience, uh, I'm not a quant, but from my experience though, I sit back with this uh, understanding that when you look at trend following and you look at uh, trades, then long trades have always historically been a lot more profitable than short trades, short-sighted trades. So is that something you... Take account of to some extent, because on one hand you want to you want to limit those risk on type of trades, but at the same time you you want to probably let your profits run because they they can become quite profitable at times. So how how do you balance uh, these two slightly opposing forces? Well, I guess we balance it
0: by having a very broad universe. Um, and I, I think once you have a very broad universe, you can find things that aren't super correlated with equities, generally speaking. Uh, that have very large trends that make up for potentially what you're losing and being more short-biased in other assets. So, for instance, you know, one of the biggest trends I think we've seen in the last few years is the European energy crisis, which is obviously a, a tragedy for, for many people. But for the trend-following front, that was a, a very large opportunity and, and started out you know, before the Ukraine invasion. That was a very small market that I think many people didn't really pay attention to. Uh, and certainly not really correlated with equities. So that that trend is is something that really drove a lot of PL. And that's just an example of of you know things that you can find globally. So yeah, it is true that if you're just biased short equities, that's probably going to be a negative proposition. But if you have this more broad approach, I don't think it costs you much. You know, one thing that we've we've found in our research, which is kind of an interesting observation, I think, is that if you kind of have a plot of Ex-ante equity beta of the trend follower. So how is it positioned right now? You know, negative equity beta or positive equity beta. That's the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, you've got subsequent realized return. Um, In contrast, the most other assets out there, there's kind of no correlation between the two. It's just like a random scatter plot. And that's pretty unusual because, you know, whether you're talking about high-yield bonds or loans or real estate or equities or what have you, if you have a higher equity beta, You expect higher returns, generally speaking, because the equity risk premium drives a lot of returns out there. That's exactly what you're talking about. Trend following is unusual in that there's no correlation between the two. So really, it means that when the trend follower is naturally defensively oriented, you know, you really haven't historically expected lower returns going forward. Conversely, when you're you know risk on, you haven't expected higher returns going forward. So I think that's what drives this, and that's what also drives the our belief in the equity beta cap, because the way that beta cap effectively works is we have lower risk in the portfolio when it's naturally risk on, and we have higher risk in the portfolio uh, when it's naturally defensive. And that's exactly what you would want in the asset allocation context if you were doing that very dynamically.
2: Makes sense. Another thing I wanted to um, ask you in in that uh, relation, when you want to have the profile that you uh, that you're seeking... Do you have to generally look at correlations and volatility differently? Do you think that maybe um, trend followers who have, you know, the the, the more maybe, let's call it uh, traditional uh, type focus uh, in terms of absolute returns maybe? Uh, and I go, it's it's a horrible question to get because we don't know necessarily what other people are doing. But do, when you think about how you think about volatility and correlations, do you think it's you have a different approach to it?
0: No, I wouldn't really say so. I mean, you need to measure correlations in a robust way, because if you're having an equity beta cap, that means you have some view of the equity correlation of these different assets. And in order to make that a robust concept, you need to have a robust measure of correlation. And that's not always easy. You need to have a fairly long look back window to measure that stuff in a robust way in kind of in contrast to measuring volatility of assets, which require fewer data points, just statistically speaking. So that means that you can't be super dynamic in changing your assumption about, for instance, the correlation between stocks and bonds. You need to have a fairly slow-moving assessment of that. But generally speaking, I don't think um, our measurement of volatilities and correlations are are
2: particularly unique. Yeah. I know this is one of uh, Alan's questions, but it's in the same section, so I'm gonna, because he allowed me in here, Matt, I'm gonna ask it, and that's machine learning. Um, Is that something you um, entertain?
0: uh we've we've looked at it a little bit in other contexts you know for instance we have equity strategies that that do some things based on machine learning but we haven't found any obvious uses in the trend following space um i think it's more of a buzz topic than something that's ne- necessarily going to pay off in real life that's my view but you know i potentially am too negative on it
2: No, I actually think you probably sum it up pretty well for most of the people we've uh, talked about. And even those who say, yeah, we use it a little bit, they all start by saying, oh, we use it very cautiously and uh, we we always see it. So it's not real kind of let it loose kind of thing. So anyways.
3: Yeah, just following up on this topic around kind of building this uh, very... Defensive Oriented Trend Programme. Um, just curious to get your thoughts on a couple of other um, asset classes. Um, I mean, you obviously talked about limiting the kind of uh, exposure, not just equities, but but equity-like uh, product as well. What about the role of bonds in the portfolio? And, you know, you might've thought, you know, for, for many years, if you want to have that defensive property, you would just lever up on long bonds at the first sign of equity downturns. Um, was that Would that have been a part of the approach or, Um, And and the fact that we kind of transitioned into a, a, you know, prolonged bond uh, bear market last year, did that create any kind of challenge in the portfolio? Or do you kind of keep bonds uh, kind of neutral in that kind of uh, calculation of the overall equity beta?
0: Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I should say that, you know, we don't really do anything discretionarily. So we don't take a view that, oh, things have changed in bonds. Now the correlation is flipped. We're going to treat it differently you know, we kind of allow the models to measure that in real time and, you know, evolve as appropriate. Um, But yeah, bonds definitely do factor into our equity beta calculation. So as you mentioned, you know, for for many decades, they looked very uh, defensively oriented and being long bonds would look like negative equity beta to us. So to some extent, that would allow us to be you know, if we were long bonds, that would allow the portfolio to be longer equities as a result and, and still be below the equity beta cap. You know, that is maybe starting to change. But as I mentioned before, like, you know, it takes a long time to measure correlations robustly. So I, I think that is still not changed in our assessment of correlations. We think they probably still have the kind of the same behavior, roughly speaking, that they've always had in crisis events. Uh, and that's factored into the equity beta cap. But um, we don't do anything, we don't make any discretionary calls on that. One thing that I do think is interesting on this topic, it's just kind of an aside, is you know, we we heard many criticisms over the years, before the last couple of years, that you know, trend followers just profited from being long bonds. And, you know, is there anything else to it? So I think the last year and a half or so has been a vindication on that front that, you know, yes, it does do something different. In fact, it can be very diversifying to bond portfolios in many cases. So I I think that's very interesting, you know, very good for the space to have seen that uh, episode.
3: Uh, The second area I wanted to get your sense on, and and again, it was something that probably didn't work as well last year, but I've heard of strategies like this building in a kind of a, a long VIX, a dynamic long VIX, uh, or a long vault strategy uh, as as part of the kind of protection mix. Is that something you've looked at? And and again, obviously that type of thing didn't work as well last year. So curious to get your observations on, on that as part of the defensive mix.
0: Well, I guess that gets back to our philosophy on pure trend following. So we do run exactly that type of strategy, a long VIX strategy in our other portfolios and our kind of multi-strategy quant portfolios that are not supposed to be pure trend we do see value in that for exactly the reasons you mentioned that can be very hedging to more risk on type strategies short vol in particular but we don't think that it necessarily belongs in this type of portfolio and in fact you know it would not be super diversifying to the rest of the trend volume portfolio so it, in that sense also it doesn't really make sense so that we we really don't include things like that here
3: okay and Maybe taking a step back to look at the role of all of these in in a a larger portfolio, um, you've got, obviously, equity risk, which we're not really talking about. But then if you're thinking about diversifiers and defensive strategies and risk mitigators and protection, you've got, historically, it's been long duration, trend following or tail risk. If you were constructing a portfolio of equities plus some mix of those, how would you think about what's the right mix?
0: Oh, that's a very tough question. I mean, I, I think, I think you would want a mix of a number of things because all all the things that you've mentioned, you know, either cost money like tail risk hedging, which naturally limits how much you can have there, or doesn't give you guaranteed protection like duration. Last year, obviously, didn't give you protection. Um, trend following happened to work last year, but it's certainly not guaranteed either. I mean, other things that people have talked about are like long Japanese yen. You know, that often is kind of a flight to quality type asset, that also would have been terrible last year. So I think you really need a mix of all of these different things if that's your goal to produce protection. But generally speaking, I mean, for an absolute return mandate, um, I I personally would want to limit my exposure to these tail risk hedges that cost money because that's, you know, really your diversification should be over time and through asset allocation rather than paying actual money to, to hedge the downside that's why i think trend following is very attractive because it pays you money to do that
3: okay um maybe just moving on to to research more generally and um i mean can you give us a sense on obviously you've been involved in in the strategy for i think you mentioned 15 years or so has has the strategy evolved a lot over that time period and 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 what have been the big kind of changes that you've um initiated on on the back of of research
0: well, I guess it's um, both. I mean, the strategy has evolved a lot in some ways and a little in other ways. So in terms of the kind of pureness and the, the basic strategy design, it's evolved very gradually and, you know, in relatively small ways over time. It's always had a focus on, on being fast and defensive and that we've preserved throughout the whole history. And in ways where it's changed a lot is the evolution of our universe um, so I kind of mentioned this earlier, but um, we think that having a broad universe is extremely important, and that's something we focused a lot of our efforts on. So one thing that is very unusual about trend following, shocking almost, in, in contrast to many other strategies out there, is that you know most of your trades are losers. the The big, sustained, profitable trends are rare. Only about a third of the trends that we identify turn out to be profitable, but they make a lot more than what you lose on the losers. That's what drives the long-term payoff of the, of the strategy. But what that means is that you know, you know, diversification is great in every investment portfolio, but here it's absolutely essential because you need to cast a very wide net in order to capture as many of those rare trends as possible. So I already mentioned the European energy crisis, which I think for most US investors at least you know, was, was something we never even thought about before the ukraine crisis there are other examples than that you know hungarian interest rates starting in you know middle of 2021 far before uh developed market rates really established a trend upward you know were ticking very steadily upward and that was a very profitable trend so there are examples like that where there are big trends in strange markets that you know a lot of people don't really think about and you really need to have exposure to those things in order to uh, in order to make money over time in a consistent way. So that's been a big focus of ours.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> let me stay on this a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask you, Matt, in terms of people often ask, so how are you different um, to other managers? And as I said before, it's not that we really know detailed what other managers are doing, but we have to give some kind of answer. So I have a couple of um, kind of observations that I'd love to hear your thoughts about. Uh, one is in terms of the trend following we all do. And let's just say there are five or six different, you know, you have your moving average type strategies, you have your breakout, price, volatility, time series, momentum, whatever, you know, do you think from your research, um, do you think that, that actually the type of trend following makes a big difference which one you choose or which makes you choose?
0: Now, this is a question I get all the time, and (laughs) I think I have kind of a a view that's maybe an outlier of some sort. I I really think that makes very, very little difference. The technicalities of your rules, breakouts, or moving average crossovers, that's really just in the weeds and makes no real difference. The big difference on this topic is the speed of the ultimate signal. So you could do a breakout that's very fast, compare that to a moving average crossover that's kind of the same speed. Those are going to give you very similar performance over time. So I, I try not to get bogged down into the micro details of the exact implementation.
2: Okay, so I'm glad you said that because that's exactly the same kind of, time of answer I've been given for the last thirty plus years. Now the next question would be: Okay, I completely uh, agree, also on trend speed for sure. What about um, and this is a discussion we have kind of uh, uh, on we have on, had on the podcast on and off for a few years. I get the point about diversification. And I get the point that some managers uh, were early to move in to trade hundreds of markets instead of just the classical 60, 70 markets. However, I've also been on record saying, when I look at the numbers, if you zoom out, I really don't see a big difference. Sure, year by year, you know, there can be uh, a year where some uh, type of portfolios, let's call them that, do better. But... So I wonder whether we agree on this as well that there may not in the bigger picture be such a big difference whether you trade 300 markets or whether you trade 70 markets as such except that it can be different from you know year to year of course is 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 that a fair statement or do you have an argument um, to 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 the contrary
0: I mean I guess I I think you need to look at it in a more isolated way. So instead of just comparing funds where they say they trade 300 markets and potentially they have very little exposure to some of these weird markets, you need to just focus on the performance of the exotic markets compared with the performance of the more vanilla common markets over time. And I think if you do that kind of more apples to apples comparison, what you find is that the performance of the more exotic markets has been more consistent historically And it suffered less degradation of the sharp ratio over time than the more commonly traded markets. I think the more commonly traded markets, you know, they do have more people doing trend following on them. They're more liquid, um, more armed out. And I, I think the trend following performance has definitely degraded there. You know, we saw astronomical returns in the 90s and, you know, early 2000s. And that has, I think, generally declined, but you haven't seen nearly as big a.
2: Decline in and the more exotic, hard to access markets. Okay, fair point. Um, another thing that we like to discuss from time to time is this. Um, it's not new, but it became uh, it came certainly to the fore last year again, and that's you know trend replication. And I have no idea how your products are structured, but I did put to uh, when we spoke with uh, Yao at AQR, I did say to him that they were very early on in um, kind of. Uh, Bringing out low fee, flat fee type products uh, for Trend, and um, what it's led to—I didn't—I don't want to say that they caused it or that they said it, but but I I seem to remember at least that it, it led to maybe the impression from investors that trend following is a pretty easy strategy, so you don't have to pay much for it. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that in, in a sense, whether the, whether it is easy, uh, so to speak, uh, and therefore it shouldn't cost much, but also trend replication, which is then the next iteration of, of this is people who just look at linear regression of, of managers' uh, performance to see if they can kind of uh, create a portfolio that m- mimics that also became quite popular last year. And since I'm not a quant, I don't know what risks that might lie in these type of... Of models. So I'm curious to know what you think about that kind of replication of, of a trend-following strategy.
0: Well, I guess on, on the first point about it seeming simple, I mean, I, I have had this question a number of times and I always feel like, you know, vaguely offended by it because, you know, it certainly does sound very simple in principle, but the devil is in the details. And especially if you're trading a large number of markets, especially exotic markets where the data is, is difficult to get properly um, or get it all. Um, there really is a lot of work involved in running this in a systematic way. You can't just have a spreadsheet and say, oh, well, oil seems to be going up. Let's buy oil. It needs to be done much more professionally than that. And then on the trading front, you know that needs to be done very carefully so that you're not uh, losing all your alpha in transaction costs and fees. So I, I really think it's not something that can be easily replicated, especially if you have a broad universe. Um and then on the second point, in terms of replicating it, yeah, doing linear regressions on fund returns. I mean, I, I guess <laughs> you could capture the positions that funds had, you know, over the the sample of the regression. But you know, these these positions are fairly dynamic, uh, especially the way we do it. So I don't think that's really going to work very well. You're certainly not going to catch these turning points. And I haven't really kind of tried to do this myself or looked at the data, but I would suspect that the big turning points like in the COVID crisis in March, you're not going to have the kind of defensive behavior that you hope to have because you're going to be very slow, Uh, not to mention the fact that your regression is going to miss kind of unusual things like Hungarian interest rates or, you know, European energy or something like that. So
2: I don't think that's really a smart way to go about it. Sure. No, I appreciate that. Alan, where do you want to go next?
3: Just want to pick up on a couple of points on trading speed again. Um, I think what you've said is that the speed is your, your performance is for trend following is is that's consistent if you're fast or slow. Um, but it's from the other managers we've spoken to here and some research I've seen, there, there was a sense that fast trend degraded somewhat over the years. That maybe it was more effective uh, back in the 1980s and 90s, and more difficult now. I mean, do you agree with that and, and, and how, what allows you to be still effective at it? Is is—is it really good execution or, or 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 is that degradation? Is that for very fast trend, would you say? or what, what, What's your perspective on, on all of that?
0: No, so I definitely know what you're talking about. I mean, one of the benefits of this type of strategy is that you can back test it back a long ways. You know, we can easily run, you know, decent back tests back to 1960. And I've definitely seen what you're talking about where there are periods of time, like particularly in those earlier years where fast trend looked better. And then in the recent 20 years, which a lot of people look at, slow trend looks better. But I think if you look at it carefully, it doesn't look like a very robust conclusion that if there was some kind of level shift down in the returns, it's more kind of random noise based on what has happened. You know, we've had strong uh bull market in equities over a good chunk of the last, you know, decade or so. That's been very strong. I mean, that doesn't mean that that type of pattern is is going to per- persist going forward. Um, in particular, interest rates globally you know, steadily declined over the last two decades or so. Uh, that's something that would bias you toward slow trend following. But I don't see any robustness in that data to say that, you know, something has dramatically changed. And in fact, I would expect the opposite from a theoretical perspective. If if more money went into the space, you'd probably see a degradation in in the slower approach, and it would be pushed faster and faster. So it just doesn't agree. Like uh, my conclusions from the data are that it's not robust, and it doesn't agree agree with uh, my theoretical view on it either. So I, I don't um, I don't generally believe in that. I think you know, without casting aspersions on other people, I think it's very convenient. To assume that if you're a big trend follower, it's better to be slow because that's also much easier to do.
3: Mm. And you can trade more assets, I guess, as, as well. Um, second point, you, you, you emphasized—I uh, suppose what, what people would call alternative markets: European energy, um, Hungarian interest rates. And I've heard from other managers that when they applied their systems to those markets, they have to trade slower because, or no, maybe they don't have to, but the trading costs are higher. So if you're trading fast in those markets, it could be prohibitive. Is that your experience or do you apply the same models across uh, all markets?
0: So generally speaking, we tend to be very uh, uniform in our model application because we want to be very careful about data mining, we don't try to customize our models for you know the difference between corn and wheat, for instance, we think that it's hard to come up with robust conclusions on that and it's very subject to data mining, especially because this is a pretty non-intuitive strategy. But uh, like you mentioned, we do recognize you know some things that are guaranteed, and that is that uh, trading less liquid instruments fast is going to cost you more than trading them slow. and that's something that is not uh, random that's guaranteed. So uh, to the extent that we do kind of vary the model application across the universe, it's to do exactly what you suggested. We tend to be slower on the less liquid markets and faster on the more liquid markets. with the overall overall balance that the portfolio as a whole is relatively fast.
3: Okay. Uh, Just another one, again, on the topic of speed, I suppose it's quite interesting. Um, You you kind of occupy an interesting space in that a lot of the trend followers are kind of medium-term trend followers. And then within managed futures, you have what you call short-term traders. And they they use a mix of short-term momentum and mean reversion. But I guess, you know, uh, they could be trading fast breakouts, which might be intraday out to a few days. Um, and they do emphasize their, you know, I think it's fair to say their historical performance has often done well in, in rising uh, volatility periods. And so they would have that defensive property. So I'm just curious, have you guys looked at that very fast space as much? Or what's your thinking about having more allocation to, to even faster systems or, or fast momentum systems? Yeah, we,
0: we definitely do look at that. We have allocations to some of that in our multi-asset strategies that are kind of not pure trend following. We do think there's value there and opportunities. It's just not very scalable. Um, so if you want to make a product that's reasonably scalable and provides a lot of benefit to a lot of investors, that's just not going to be a huge contributor to
3: it. Okay. So you're very much trying to construct a portfolio that could run 5 or $10 billion, I guess, something like that, is it?
0: Well, yeah, we have $5 billion already. Um, we're not trying to be the biggest trend follower out there. I don't want to say that because we also think there's value in having a diverse universe and that's going to put a limit on how big you can get. But uh, one of the benefits of trend following in terms of leverage is that you're taking directional bets on things. You're not doing relative value between different interest rate markets or, or something like that, which you know naturally requires higher notionals to get to a certain risk target. And then as a result of that, as a smaller capacity limit, trend following is very capacity efficient because you're just taking outright bets. So we we think it's relatively large capacity. But like I said, it's not unlimited because we want to preserve a decent amount of exposure to these unique markets, which really add a lot of value over time.
2: I want to ask a couple of questions that I actually got sent from uh, a large uh, allocator in the space. Um so I just wanted to sort of hear your thoughts about it. Some some of the stuff we we've we've touched on before, but but nevertheless, I kind of promised to bring it up um, with uh, with an expert like you. So he writes to me if the ultimate objective of investing in trend following is to improve the compounding of your multi-asset portfolio while having tolerable drawdowns, A should you cap the trend followers' ability to go long equities if it allows you to maintain both a larger equity exposure outside of trend, as well as a higher allocation to trend following? That was his first question.
0: Well, I mean, we do like to cap equities. I mean, in terms of capping them at zero and allowing no equity bait in exposure, that starts to be very constraining in the model and does reduce returns pretty significantly. We do do that for separate accounts for people who want a very defensive profile, but in general, for general use, I don't think that really is the optimal approach. So I think what we've landed on is, you know, a decent constraint on equities, but new, not too tight that it really reduces the
2: return potential. Okay, that's fair. Then he goes on to ask, uh, maybe inspired from the the AQR uh, episode, I'm not sure, should you introduce non Price based trend signals, i fundamental trend indicators, if they exhibit more consistent crisis alpha?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly am a fan of adding non price based signals, but only if the key point is if they exhibit that crisis alpha. So we did spend a decent amount of time investigating just this, you know, price, you know, momentum on like, um, macro data releases, CPI and GDP and all those sorts of things across, you know, 25 different countries. And we found very good, consistent returns over time. But unfortunately, you know, because economies, probably because economies evolve relatively slowly, that model kind of acted like an extremely slow trend follower with almost no defensiveness in the returns. So it was very good in absolute returns, but adding it to the portfolio would have reduced our defensiveness. So we run that in other portfolios, but not in our trend following portfolio. So I'm a fan of doing that if you can find it, but I wouldn't add it if it's going to degrade your defensiveness.
2: Sure. Okay. No, that's fair. And then he has a question saying, um, and I love your thoughts about this, and that is how many trend following strategies do you really need in your portfolio?
0: Well, that's a tough one as well. I mean, I think the answer is uh, less than a large number. You don't, Because one thing that's kind of interesting about statistics is that if you add these kind of positively skewed strategies doing slightly different things, if you add enough of them, I guess kind of because of the central limit theorem, you're going to get something that's more normally distributed. So you don't want an infinite number of these things doing an infinite uh, variety of of parameterizations because that's going to defeat the purpose. But probably you want some diversification of styles to kind of give you a more balanced portfolio. So I, I think the number is probably a small set
2: of different strategies. Yeah, make perfect sense. Final question that he wrote was: If trend following is your first port of call for diversifying a traditional sixty-four portfolio, what's the second port of call? Yeah, uh, that's another tough
0: one. That gets back to the other question. I mean, historically, um, duration has been very good. You know, stuff like long Japanese yen and maybe at the values right now, that's attractive. People have used gold. I think those are all. Um, much less reliable than trend following Dura- duration is probably the next best one but as we've seen in what recent about long years long
2: vol or stuff like that Long vol is that is that consistently enough i mean we i think a lot of people thought after 2018 that oh yeah we need definitely some long vol in our portfolio but then maybe after last year they realized that maybe it doesn't exactly I do what you expect. I think it's expensive to, to
0: make sense in a general context I, I would
2: never pay for that myself Okay that's cool Alan where do we go next? We've got another few minutes
3: yeah i mean i I had a question that uh, around expected returns, but maybe a better question would be how do you frame kind of expected outcomes for, uh, for for your investors and in terms of saying you know you have a trend program but with a defensive characteristic or a higher defensive quality and maybe also from your own perspective like when you when you were designing it and you know a lot of people would approach this problem from the perspective of maybe maximizing the sharp or the total return. what what are you trying to maximize or what 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 metric are you looking at in terms of measuring the effectiveness in in develop in delivering the defensive quality?
0: Well, probably the the performance, you know the sharp ratio conditional on being equity in equity market drawdowns is probably the key thing that we're trying to maximize. So not the absolute sharp, but what's the the sharp conditional on being in those environments um but you know that said we still want to increase the absolute sharp ratio as much as possible and and you know we do things to do that like uh, having a broad universe
3: and i mean in terms of then how you describe that to to investors are you saying you know that the 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 program is a it's an absolute return it should have cash plus x percent expected return and with the additional characteristic of an expectation that it should be positive and is it significant equity bear markets or how would you describe that?
0: Yeah, any kind of, um, you know, very significant equity market drawdown. We frequently look at uh, kind of quintiles of equity quarterly returns. And, you know, we want to see good performance in that worst quintile to give you a kind of an example of, you know, how extreme a situation we're talking about. So small drawdowns won't necessarily register, but the big ones, the worst ones, uh, we should expect to be positive on average.
3: OK. Um, Maybe just uh, a, f- a question around liquidity, which um probably uh, quite quite relevant, uh, being, being even even f- faster trend forward than, than average. You know, there's been plenty of chat in the media, oh, liquidity maybe isn't as good as it was, a lot more um, high-frequency traders, etc. And we've had a couple of incidents where we've had exaggerated moves in markets, you know, gilt markets recently, Treasuries back in 2020. I mean, obviously, you're you're, you're trading fast, relatively fast in the market. Um, so liquidity, presumably, is important. What's your sense on liquidity conditions? Are any any notable shifts there over time with a change in in the market uh, microstructure or not?
0: Well, I mean, we're we're focused entirely on liquid derivatives. So I think the changes that have you know we've seen in the markets have been applied more to cash securities where people need a balance sheet to intermediate the risk. Uh, and less so to derivatives trade. So I don't think we've seen a major change in liquidity in the assets that we trade.
2: Yes, I mean, I'm always and you can, of course, interrupt me, Alan, but but usually at this stage, Matt, I'm, I'm allowed to ask a, a few kind of uh, more kind of fun and general rapid fire questions and. Um, and uh, so the first one uh, today would, of course, be uh, in light of the fact that there is someone who used to work at your firm that uh, w- wrote a book called The Bond King. I was wondering whether you're publishing a book called The Trend King soon.
0: <laughs> no, uh, Bill Gross is uh, you know a towering figure, right? I would <laughs> never put myself in that category.
2: Fair enough. No, uh, one thing we actually ask all of our uh, guests and it's um, it's a little bit of a trick qu- question but it's not really a trick question, but it is you know what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most? So things that you maybe hear people say about trend and and we'll say, you yeah, know I definitely don't agree with that. Is there something that springs to mind?
0: Yeah, yeah, something that definitely springs to mind is, is the headlines that I see periodically about trend followers. You know being long equities or short equities and potentially there's a change on the horizon is going to affect you know s&p 500 or or 10-year bond futures i i think that idea is is kind of way off i think trend followers are far too small to affect those very
2: very liquid markets so i think it's more of clickbait than anything else you know what that's the first time someone have brought that up but I couldn't agree more. I'm not saying that that's the one I would pick, but it's definitely in my top three. And of course, you don't know this, Matt, but on this day where we are recording, Alan and I have just recorded our weekly conversation um, and we spend a whole... 15, 20 minutes discussing the latest Bloomberg article that goes exactly to that point, but also uh, some analysis uh, from another firm about the footprint of CTA. So um, so, anyways, I, I love your answer and uh, I'm, I'm I'm a fan of, of that choice for sure. And then maybe finally, and then we can, if there's anything else you want to bring up, Matt or Alan, I mean, now that we go into 2023, clearly 2022 was a year where people were reminded of the, uh, of the um, attributes that we bring to uh, a f- portfolio. Um, w- w- what are you most excited about when you look into the year? And, and maybe are, do you have any concerns uh, in terms of how the financial world is behaving? Well, I mean, it's always hard to predict what trend following is going to do. I, I would definitely never t-
0: predict that. But um, one thing that I am kind of hardened by is the reduced presence in global markets of central banks. So you know, there was a, a very fallow period in trend following, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, where, you know, trends that tried to get started were kind of, you know, stopped in their tracks by very active central banks globally coordinated in some sense. And that is really changing. So with the inflation that we've seen globally coming out of COVID, central banks now have their hands full with multiple potential problems to deal with. And they really can't be as effective or as active as they have been historically. And that creates kind of a, a riper environment for trend following. Like even the uh, BOJ, we're seeing signs of life there where you know potentially their extraordinary measures might be removed in, in the coming year. Uh, and that's really a very interesting thing to me because that's been um, in place for a very long time. And that market really has not done much over that period of time. So... To the extent that things are less controlled and free to float and move, that allows more trends to form. And to that extent, I think it's uh, potentially a very good environment.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's that's a great point. Matt, is there something that you feel we forgot to ask you or is there a particular topic that you kind of internally or with your uh, clients and prospects like to talk about that we, we didn't have in our lineup today? Something you want to mention before we start to wrap up?
0: No, I think we've pretty much covered the the main things. I mean, the most important thing I would mention aside from the defensive profile of trend following is just the universe. Um, that's one thing I think people should really focus on, making sure when they're investing in trend following that they're they're getting material exposure to a very broad universe. Because as I mentioned, trends being relatively rare, your best chance of success is having exposure to these strange corners of the market. And I don't mean just having them in the portfolio in some token amount, but having material exposure to things like european power or or hungarian interest rates when trends pop up there so i I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind
3: yeah no
2: that's a great point alan anything you want to maybe just one final one which
3: uh maybe a little bit of left field um obviously you know you mentioned the bond king and you know if you mentioned the word pimco most people obviously think in terms of a bond shop i'm just curious how, what's the experience of running trend following like in a bond shop? I mean, from the perspective of, is that more challenging when you go out to meet clients? Are, are people surprised to hear you've got a big uh, managed futures business? Is it or are there um, benefits to, 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 to that as well? I guess there's the, there, there is the brand that you have, uh, but just curious, uh, 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 any, any observations around that? Well, I would say generally speaking, it's been very additive.
0: So in a couple of different ways. So generally speaking, investors here are very value oriented. Um, So they provide a healthy dose of skepticism about what we're doing and, you know, keep us on our toes, if you will. And then kind of on the kind of more um, substantial front, you know, we get all kinds of ideas from the discretionary traders here. So I already mentioned, you know, a couple of times. You know, Hungarian interest rates, you know, we trade a very broad set of instruments. Um, there are many liquid fixed income markets out there, and we have the benefit of of being able to add those to our portfolio in a pretty easy way because people have already done the legwork of figuring out how to trade those. You know, we've got experts to trade those, we've got all the data, which is often hard to come by. So, and that's just one example. So generally speaking, being part of this broader organization with a very wide footprint has been extremely additive to our approach.
2: Great stuff. I mean, um, I think we're going to sort of wrap up on 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 that note, Matt, this has truly been fascinating. It's been delightful. Um, and thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. And hopefully we can do this sometime again in the future. To all of you listening today, hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues from Alan and me. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unblocked as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on our website. And of course, not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other.